Welcome to Train Rush, brought to you by your host, Craig Taylor. Today, we're missing Dave, as Dave had a scheduling conflict. He's going to see the World Cup cricket, which, uh, frankly, I'm quite jealous of. However, to make up for that, we've got a fantastic guest on. Gavin Brown of Roxy Games Laboratory has come in to speak to us about his in-flight Kickstarter for Iron Clays. Now, I know there's been a lot of chats on various 18xx groups about the qualities of these things, the distributions, the pricing, whether you want to set, whether you don't want to set. And I figured there is probably no better person to speak to than the guy behind the Kickstarter. So, Gavin, thank you very much for talking to us from sunny Calgary. How are things over there? Things are great. Yeah. The, I mean, this Kickstarter, although there is lots of chatter and there's lots of requests, has been actually so far quite smooth <laughs> compared to our previous Kickstarters. Uh, not that our other ones haven't been as successful, just the level of constructive responses and, and being respectful it has just been astonishing, frankly. it's Everybody's really conducting themselves in a friendly manner and it's just been great actually for our whole team so far well i suspect the average age of the 18xx community so certainly from the 18xx buyers i appreciate they're not the only people buying the chips is a little bit higher so i would hope that some degree of uh, civilized conduct comes with <laughs> age but who knows i may be stereotyping there so far so good indeed well i'm, I'm pleased to hear it's going good uh, so i'm going to ask a little bit about you if that's okay gavin just to set a bit of context I'll let you know how I kind of came across your product initially if you'll uh, humor me on that one. So a number of years ago, my friend um, introduced me to your publishing house via Super Motherload, which is massively off kind of character for this podcast. But one of the things that struck me about that product in particular was the passion resonated all the way through from the art to the grade of materials to the game design. It really was true to the IP it was you know lifting from. And then down the line, I played uh, Steampunk Rally, which I'll admit is not my sort of game. But again, that kind of commitment to the visuals and the theme and the research behind the various scientists in it really sang out to me. So as far as a badge is concerned, I've always looked at Roxley as a mark of quality. To then see you guys do Brass was all but a dream come true. Brass is, a, you know, for many of us, is a growl game. It's, you know, it's arguably a Martin Wallace's magnum opus design. So to see that given a wonderful modern production was something we were really pleased to see at the train rush. I know it's one of Dave's favourites as well. So what got you into gaming? And then I'll ask after that, what got you into game publishing? Long, long time ago, I, I actually come from sort of the video game world. In the late 90s, early 2000s, I ran a internet cafe. I was very, very heavy into video games and multiplayer video games. And one of the reasons I started an internet cafe was because I liked the idea of people playing games in a social environment together in the same room. So, you know, eventually that sort of gaming world changed. But I also, I, I actually wanted to become a video game designer for a bit, like extremely long time. Ever since like in my teens, I wanted to be a, a video game designer. But as, as you probably know, like it's a huge undertaking to produce a video game uh, and you need to do it with a, you know, a, a big team of people. Not always, like especially now with the tools are available now. But anyways, it was, it was, it's really, you know, it's a really heavy process. And I've, I played a game, which everybody knows, Carcassonne. It was just such a fundamentally different type of design than basically any video game I'd ever played. You know, it's constructive rather than destructive, which all video games are mostly, you know, kill the other guys somehow. <laughs> you know, you have SimCity and stuff, but those aren't competitive, right? There was a lot of single player constructive games, but, you know, being constructive, no player elimination, 
it was just so so revolutionary to me and and th- that you could do that with a board game was just just astonishing to me and it was, it was almost like a religious experience for me immediately i realized all this time that i wanted to you know make these video games um and i had all these design documents and stuff instantly i, I realized no i want to do this for the rest of my life i want to design games uh, that, that epiphany moment is really clear isn't it it's the it's when you realize that board games aren't necessarily just monopoly your games kind of were part of this awakening for me is that games are actually cultural artifacts now you know, you put the thing on the table and it isn't just the game design, it's everything else that goes into it. Totally, yeah. It's an exciting space. So I can understand the appeal massively. Started designing board games. I started with a soccer game uh, that I worked on for four years and, it, you know, it just didn't pan out. I wasn't, I was designing in a, you know, in a sort of box. I didn't have any contacts. I was playtesting it with my close friends that didn't know anything about game design. Eventually, I got introduced to other game designers, and we created a a little organization called the Game Artisans of Canada, which you know eventually got a lot of like recognition as being this sort of place where quality game designs come out of. And that group really helped me become a better game designer because you know there was a lot of like-minded designers in there trying to make their designs good. And this was kind of like at the infancy of what has become kind of modern board game design in North America. So through a lot of, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears and frustration and failure after failure of working on game designs, I eventually designed a really, not what I'm most proud of, but close to what I'm most proud of is a game called Jab Real-Time Boxing. That was my first published design by Tasty Minstrel Games. It was a real-time boxing game and it's actually quite you know, in my opinion, it's quite tactical and it, it feels like you're almost like you're actually boxing. Like, Is it in print? Can I get a copy? No, it's out of print. So the game is real time. A lot of people actually can't, won't even play it because it's so panic inducing. But, it, you know, as a game designer, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want. That's like boxing, right? And that's the thing. It's experience driven, right? I can, yeah. I can get that. My wife would love it. She loves um, Jungle Speed and Geister Splits. And all these things that have you thinking fast that aren't what people would think of as board game experiences, right? People don't think of the real time thing of it at all. But I think that's one of the beautiful things about board games now is they defy the expectations of what a board game is for like 99% of people out there. Yeah, totally. And it's kind of like Jab was kind of like a board game as a piece of art where I'm trying to like create something that matches a vision, not necessarily thinking. And that, that taught me a lot about like, you know, what is a board game as a product versus what is a board game as a piece of art? Because that was my design that I designed for me that I wanted like it to just be like boxing. And the end result was a lot of people, even though it like, I, I actually just played it last year and I was like, this game is really awesome. The thing that it suffers from most, which I guess is kind of like related to a lot of the reason why people don't, like some people are turned off of 18xx is everybody has their threshold for the level of challenge that they're willing to embrace right 18xx players are kind of like yes drag me through the mud for two hours and i'm kind i'm that way i mean i I come from playing rts's you know which when you play it when you yeah when you play an rts competitively you better be ready to lose your first like 32 games before you win a single one kind of thing there's definitely a good culture in there, isn't there? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyways, it was not a huge success in the market, but I'm proud of it regardless. The second one was Super Motherload, actually, that was published. And that was a co-design between myself and uh, Matt Tolman, who's also the co-designer of Brass Birmingham with me. He uh, was approached by a company 
in Alberta called X Gen Studios, and they made Motherload, and they played his his first game, uh, which was called Undermining, which he actually based on Motherload. Motherload was an old Flash game that you could just play on the internet on like Newgrounds or whatever. They said, "Hey, we want you to like make Super Motherload. You know, we wanted you to make it like Undermining, but Undermining was like a pick up and deliver game. Which by today, I actually hate pick up and deliver games. It's it's like one I try to I try to appreciate all genres of board games as much as I can. But now you and me both. Yeah, it's kind of like the for me the worst type of game. I've never played a good pick up and deliver game that I really truly like. I'll give you a piece of advice there. Okay, I." typically hate them with a fiery passion there's some really good ones out there that i just cannot stand however age of steam has a slight pick up and deliver element in it okay yeah it's just a means of scoring it's not the whole thing actually you you could argue the game is mostly about the auctions so if you want want to try one that will subvert your expectations then maybe uh mr wallace's age of steam is the one to take a look at i have played age of steam and i didn't i did enjoy it it was years and years ago so I should actually brush up on it. EGG released a new version, right? So that looks like it's long gone, but it'll be available in the market. It's very similar to your RTS kind of culture thing, though. People who play that play that a lot, so prepare to get stomped a little bit as you get up to speed. Like I said, I enjoy a, a true challenge, so that's no problem for me. Uh, and then obviously we went we went to Steampunk Rally, then we went to Santorini, which was like you know between that and Brass, there's not two games that can be more different in every way. So, you know, what, what Roxley's trying to accomplish, like people are like, what kind of games does Roxley make? And my answer is always just, we want to make good games. And I have a pretty broad sense of appreciation for different types of games. I can enjoy a party game and I can, you know, as long as for me, in my opinion, that the game is really good, then, then yes, we will publish it. Contrary to what people might expect, I play the odd party game and it's about for me a quality game is not between pillar and post right a hybrid game that's kind of a party game but with some strategy element baked into it i've got no interest in but if you put times up in front of me and ask me to play what is shiraz for the scoring system for two hours i'll do that every night of the week love it but like i say a good game doesn't have to be one thing right and i i can totally get behind that so I've got to ask then, obviously we've gone through the portion of the Roxy catalog, we've done things like Dice Throne and God knows what that are super successful on the market, but that I certainly couldn't speak to. What's your favorite game that you're playing right now that you don't publish? I guess it depends, like, because I, I mean, I gravitate towards heavy games. I get to play less heavy games now, though, which is sad, but I mean, this is the plight of the publisher. You can either make games or you can play games, but you can't really do both. I play a lot of prototypes but i think there's a very simple game right now called crass carry art it's a very simple trick-taking game it's very unique feeling and different it just has different dynamics and different strategies and even different mechanics that i haven't seen in another trick-taking game so just because of the level of innovation it kind of makes me like covet that we do do highly polished stuff but for me, we're always really looking to innovate, which can be very challenging, obviously. I'm sure we're going to come to that with the Iron Clays as well, about the cost of innovation, so to speak. Can you play this trick-taking game with a deck of iron spades is the important question. I doubt you can by the sounds of it. but um... you, Can you? No, you can't, because they go up to 14, unfortunately. It's a shame. Maybe an option on the Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> all joking aside, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole now. Have you uh, played a lot of Cube Rails, or have you played any 18xx, or is that something? Because I know you put Paul 
uh, your social media guy into the lion's den, so to speak, of getting a bit of exposure to 18xx via both the internet and a bit of live play. So what's your experience so far, I guess? I've played 1846. The one that Mayfair did, I think, was it Mayfair? 1830 is the Mayfair one most people have played. I thought that one was good. The one that I played the most of, uh, there's like a DOS app. 1830, that'll be, yeah, there's an 1830 DOS box app. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's 1830 as well. So I played that in DOS box, like you can play it in your browser. And I was like, I want to like, I want to try it. And it's got AI, so I can probably go through this quick. And you actually can plow through a game of 18xx on that app really quickly. I loved all the dynamics of it and the auctioning. And, and like, I'm going to be talking really ignorantly, but there's all these moves in 18xx that you can do. You can make your company worth kind of nothing or cash it out and then give force the ownership onto somebody else. And they've tanked all their shares kind of thing. Those moments you kind of don't see in very many other games. And they're incredibly vicious, right? I love that. Obviously, it takes a special type of person. And actually, that 18 Chesapeake, I think I'm going to pick that up because I would love to um, I would love to get really actually get into to trying a, an 18xx game with, with friends. Well, it's, in my opinion, that's no softer, right? It's brilliant because it's a beginner's game that actually shows the format for what it is. Initially, you'll all be playing with your train sets, but it's got that opportunity for company dumping and doing nasty things to each other. And like you say, it's a self-selecting audience. People who get into it are the kind of people who enjoy that. But it's also what limits the market to a certain extent, because in a marketplace of constructive games and people having you know these kind of softer experiences, I don't mean that in a bad way. There's soft can be relaxing, soft can be fun, but something with edges like 18xx can be quite hard to sell. Yep. And also, you talk about the DOS box thing, and I think this is where there's a crossover with your Iron Clays, right? The reason the DOS box is so quick, and in my opinion, why people are so kind of interested in the Iron Clays and the physical characteristics is, the reason you can play 1830 so quick on DOS box, in part, is because the cash handling is instant. There's lots of events, you know, cash handling events, and they involve weird numbers of chips. So having an accessory that is nice to work with and efficient to work with due to the split is important. So we'll drill into that when we talk about the actual specifics towards the tail end of it. But you're absolutely right. It's a wonderful genre. I'm glad you've been exposed to it directly because it makes the whole uh, rest of this conversation a lot easier. Have you ever considered publishing one? Absolutely. I mean, at this point, one of the things that we would like to accomplish and is kind of looking at and studying 18xx because like that dos box version i've probably played this was again probably like six years or seven years ago maybe but I've, i mean i probably played it 40 or 50 times kind of thing like i found it very addictive and i really really enjoyed my experience there and and i played 1830 with my friends on the mayfair edition or whatever i immediately started thinking about how we could and the, like to 18xx people like that are, are probably listening to your podcast, like this may be offensive, but, you know, actually doing something with that system and trying to harness the soul of, of the 18xx experience and making it not even necessarily making it softer, but trying to make it shorter, perhaps, which may be an impossibility, right? What I will say, Gavin, is don't worry about uh, offending our audience, because do you know what? It's a broad church. It really is a broad church. And from as far as our podcast is concerned, we certainly want to encourage more participation. And, you know, at the end of the day, the old school, hardcore, pointy 18xxs are still going to exist. 
Yeah. So having a broader range of stuff available, do you know what? Most people who play 18xx find the thing that's most repugnant is a game that's a direct clone of another game and adds nothing new. Gotcha. There's merit in trying something different, absolutely. If you look at the original publication of Santorini, Gord Hamilton, the designer of the game, he just produced a bunch of sets himself, like 100 sets, which actually, I mean, that, that's kind of a lot, what a lot of 18xxers do, right? Like designers? Totally, yep. So he was kind of doing that, and this he designed the game in 1984. So I think he did this in like the 90s, like the early 90s. He self-published the game and sold maybe you know 200 copies. When you look at what we've done to the game, it looks nothing like um, what it originally looked like. And abstract, I think that old school hardcore 18xxers are a lot like share a lot with the hardcore abstract community. In that, like, if you, I've met Chris Berm at Essen, Chris Berm, he designs the GIF series of abstract games, and they're very obviously the best abstracts there are. But you have a conversation with him. He he's like Santorini is like the most offensive thing he can imagine. Not the gameplay; he loves the game. What we've done to it, making it accessible to the broader market, he's like. That's disgusting. <laughs> like, no graphics because, you know, he's of the thought that there's beauty in these mathematical graphics. I want to see squares and cylinders and these geometrical shapes. I don't want to see all your, you know, toy looking crap, right? It's kind of his attitude. You know, I feel like we, we put a huge amount of effort into actually trying to make it look classy while actually also trying to make, you know, give a proper 3D experience. There's a thing there, right? You see, when you get further down the rabbit hole, possibility becomes more of an important value to you. But I would also argue that when you're not that far down the rabbit hole, having the journey of mastery being fun, and being fun can also be part invoked by how the thing looks and how it feels and, and the dressing, and that's okay. You know, if you find that presentation, to use your word, offensive, then heck, redraw it. You know, the tools are out there. I think it's great to have a product that will potentially broadly appeal. I don't think that's a bad thing, ultimately. Yeah, and so like if we did an 18xx game, we would kind of want to do it in a way that we did Brass, probably. Not using the exact same sort of style as Brass, but kind of doing what we did with Brass, which is trying, just making an attempt. Because what, what Santorini did is it took something that very, very few people were willing to play and making it so you you know your your five year old your ten year old kid your wife you know your friends want to play with you they see it on the table they're like I want to play that game you know if we we're going to study eighteen xx and if we feel like we can contribute something meaningful and make it more accessible to the broader market then absolutely we're in I'll go say must applaud you for having Paul reach out to the various eighteen xx communities to chat around the poker chip stuff. Um, he did a great job of engaging and listening to lots of folks. And, you know, I've got to say, how did he manage to pick anything out of that wall of noise for you to work on? Did you get some value out of that engagement? Yeah, we did. And because I'm so obsessive, I mean, that's kind of like my superpower and also my fault. I obsess about every part of every product. And when I start getting too much criticism and people are right, that's the criticism that hurts. When people are probably right and we can't necessarily do anything about it. And sometimes we're split, right? Because, you know, if you if you look at bank distributions and stuff, as far as we understand, one of the more respected bank distributions is Clearclaw's um three hundred ninety-one chip uh distribution that he's got on his profile on Board Game Geek. 
So we, we tried to model the Ironclays 400 after that model, but then we have people that'll be like, I want the tens as well, you know, but 18XX is like, tens are useless. Don't have any tens in there, right? So it's it there, and then we have brass customers that are upgrading, and they already have tens. And we there's just there's different people from different areas that want different things, and they it's not that we're not responsive to a lot of those things. It's that they're in conflict with with each other, and we can only logistically offer so many options and upgrade paths. I mean. Our days now are basically just what can we do to appease the greatest number of people and have them happy about not begrudging by the time they get their their box, right? I'll offer you some feedback there, Gavin, if I may. I would say the customization option there, you know, deals with a multitude of sins, right? Bake your own as you want it. It's kind of what Burger King used to do, you know, have it your way. I'm not sure how anybody can really argue with that. That is inspired. I just want to give that feedback in. I, when I saw that, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Thank you. There's been chatter of like, you know, we'd like a 50 denomination. I mean, what's your opinion on on the 50 denomination? I'm kind of in the clear claw camp where it's like, I would prefer less denominations on the table because I think his bank has six denominations. I would rather have the 50s in there over the 2000s but that's personal because I don't play many games that have banks that big. Gotcha. I think, I think theoretically having a bank that can go that big to cover the full suite of 18xx games is the right call. If 50s were available, I would be buying rolls of 50s and typically having them in the case and having the 2K chips sitting somewhere for those games when I need them. But the actual clear claw approach is generally one I kind of subscribe to, actually. I think it makes sense. Like you quite rightly said, there's two kind of camps there on the whole. Uh, we have other backers that are, you know, like, well, can you also do a, this chip? The more colors there are, the better it'll look. Like, that's actually, you know, that's actually how they feel. Like, they want the aesthetics of more denominations, right? Which is in direct conflict with most of the 18xx community, which is like, let's have the correct number of the right denominations, the most right denominations. And as far as I understand that, uh, it's like 6100s, 120-20s, 22,000s, uh, 4500s, I think. Gavin has passed the test, so uh, he may come back. <laughs> <a bit. laughs> um. So anyways, we, we've just been really following ClearClaw. Like, I've, I've actually talked to ClearClaw via IRC game. Like, there was like a long time ago on IRC, we chatted a lot about game design. And he was a hard, obviously hardcore 18xxer, and he's one of the most well-known. And he's he has his well-known review of Age of Steam, and he's very very opinionated, and he's very uh, crass and direct. And if if something sucks, he'll tell you why, how badly it sucks. And I actually love that about him. I love people that are are highly opinionated, but also knowledgeable to back up the their high opinionation. So. The thing I would say, though, is we always forget on the show um, and in our conversations we have around this in social media, although 18xx players are a big customer for this project, I imagine we're not the only customer, right? I mean, you had some other customers in mind when you were doing the Iron Clays thing, I'm sure. Yes. I mean, one of the big markets, obviously, is is people like, and I mean, we're making a deck of cards, right? So there's a lot of people that are going to be using them to play poker. Um, so the 400 set, 
you know, it's not only supposed to be good for, you know, so there's, there's really three camps, actually. There's like the poker players. Uh, then there's the people that want the aesthetics. Functionality is more is paramount to us. We're not going to make a non-functional bank just to make those people happy. And then there's the 18xx players. So we're trying to do the best we can. And the, what we figured the best way to do this is just, okay, well, if you don't like the build that we have, we're offering you a build your own bank option. What's the correct way to do that, Gavin? I have to ask because I'm trying to do it myself. Do I back just at the, say, the 400 chip level and then I add it on the pledge manager? Do I need to add that $31 on now to my Kickstarter pledge? Yeah, you'll be able to add it on in the in the pledge manager. I mean, the, the Kickstarter hasn't, I mean, concluded yet. We're, we're still like, you know, kind of all day analyzing all these comments and stuff. Like just in the comment section on Kickstarter, not only these like train game forums and board game geek, we're trying to analyze and find patterns in what the most requested things are. And we're looking at options to, to try to be as accommodating as possible. What would be really obviously helpful is if, you know, 18xxers could come to a conclusion of what the perfect set of, you know, 400 chips were. And like, if, if that was possible, then we would obviously look at, you know, if there was some big vote, here's the best one. I'll tell you if God exists tomorrow, Gavin, it's just as likely. It's fine. I'll have a definitive answer for you by 12. <laughs> that one will never get closed out, I don't think, because it's, like I say, I think fundamentally how you handle cash is almost a very personal thing, right? Yeah. And it's hard to get a right answer to something that's that personal. I think, like I say, I think the thing you've done with allowing people to customize for the set they want is ideal. I can't think of a better way of doing it. So I'm going to ask a question, if I may, about the colors. That is the elephant in the room. I know you're working with um, Chad Michael Studios. I imagine they were doing the sort of the artistic kind of vision for it, for want of a better term. Yep. How did you land on this color palette? Was that more to do with supporting the original game, you know, the chips were for support brass, or what led to this colors? Because that's, that's a bone of contention in the sense that people are, they're non-traditional colors, right? Unashamedly so. Obviously, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and... I wanted to divorce the set of game counters, right? right? Not calling them poker chips for a reason, because I don't want them to be associated with the idea of, oh, well, you use those to play poker. Like the, the idea is, is, again, like when I'm talking about bringing things like bringing Santorini to a, a greater amount of people, I want people who play heavy games to be able to look at the Iron Clay's product and say, I want to use those when we play our heavy games because they don't look like poker chips. They look like these Victorian clays, you know, that don't have anything to do with poker. So basically, I, did, I just designed the color palette from the ground up to be basically just not looking at poker, just trying to create a, a color palette that, you know, was obviously aesthetically pleasing. So what I had done was if they, they actually decrease in... <laughs> And this was, you know, the original design, but now things are getting a lot more complex. So maybe, you know, I might not be able to maintain this, but the idea was from one being white, the, and then you have light blue is slightly more pigment. So it's kind of like a grading of pigment. The reds have more pigment than the fives, then the twenties are even darker. And then when we get to a hundred, we wrap into the next, you know, there's another zero added on. So then we start at bright again and then darker and darker and then so that was kind of the that was kind of the idea and design behind it but now we have other denominations we're having requests for 50 
it's you know <laughs> it's it, it, you know it just becomes more and more complex right so at some point we have to kind of um you know break, break a row. sure yeah. yeah so and and really like yes they're different colors but they have the numbers on them and after about 30 seconds i mean i kind of know that the five is blue i mean like if you've ever played another board game no board game has coins that follow a specific color palette so in my, in my actual practical experience nobody that i've ever used iron clays with in a game has been like oh i i you know i threw down a 20 and, and i thought it was going to be a, a five or whatever like no one is confused like that Part of the appeal of the product for me is that my, my local values when it comes to the poker chips I'm intending to buy, I don't want all the card suits and all the casino paraphernalia all over them. That's my taste. I'm not saying anybody who has a set like that you know, is wrong, but the set I want to buy, I want it to be clean and not have that association. So I totally respect that kind of ethos coming at it from actually these are gaming counters and poker chips have a good handling characteristic, but they are gaming counters. That makes a whole heap of sense. So thank you for talking to that. I really appreciate it. It's an awkward question and uh, a consummately uh, smooth answer. Thank you, Gavin. We also have poker players saying, look, we need a 25 to play poker with. And, you know, one of my friends is, or actually one of the staff here, Adam Wise, you know, he just ran a poker tournament on the weekend and he's quite versed at, you know, designing a poker tournament. He's a game designer um, and he knows lots about poker. And so does Matt Tolman, actually. So they play poker all the time. And our, you know, our set works perfectly with poker with 11 people they played with two sets of, um, uh, so for a total of 400 chips, they played a perfect game, you know, perfect <laughs> tournament game of poker. But you do have the same sort of thing as like the 18xx community. We need 25s. If it doesn't have 25s, then it doesn't work kind of thing. It, it's, sure. just, it's not a poker set if it doesn't have 25s. And we actually ran uh, during the brass campaign. They were originally 25s. Iron Clays, the 20s were actually 25s. But we had so much backlash against 25s back then that we're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna run a poll. We're gonna we're gonna do a vote. And it was something like 70 or 80 percent of people preferred 20s over 25s for the set. So we're like, okay, you've spoken. That's all you can do, and I can understand that. If you look at some of the big boys like Apache Custom Poker Chips. You know, they, they'll do a wide range of distributions, but that is all they are doing. You know, say distributions, denominations, rather. But that's all they're doing. So speaking of which, about all you're doing, am I correct in saying that this originally, the, these game encounters, they just came out of the fact that brass really benefits from poker chips? Or was there a desire to do these before brass? What was chicken or egg scenario here? How did, how did this thing originally come up? Like I said, I've always loved using poker chips. And actually, J.C. Lawrence was, I mean, he, I think he's in, the one that introduced me to the idea of using poker chips in games. Like, he would talk about 18xx and how superior poker chips are in heavy games. So, you know, we started using them in brass, and they're just fun to fiddle with, and they're just so much more stackable, so much more usable, so much more usable than metal coins, in my opinion. So many people were asking in brass, we want brass coins, we want metal coins. There was hundreds and hundreds of, of requests for metal coins. There's Everybody's making metal coins. We don't want to make metal coins. We want to make something more usable. And there was a lot of complaints about it, frankly, until they actually received them and then everybody loved them. Or until actually they saw them, right? Because they've actually done, and 
how we actually started, why we made it its own Kickstarter campaign was because of how well they've actually done. So we had 13,000 backers or 14,000 backers in brass almost of those backers, all those people. So just consider all those people are getting already getting poker chips, 78 poker chips in each deluxe version of the game that they buy. So they already have that they don't need anymore. During backer kit, we sold an extra, so 7,000 of those people bought more poker chips on top, like bought more complete sets of Iron Clay's 100s. So that's like a 50% attach rate for wanting more. So we're like, okay, there. this is obviously something that people want, right? They're nice. The only, the only issue I had was that the units didn't go high enough to support 18xx, but they do now. So no moaning here. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of how it's came to be in into its own campaign. And I guess because you've probably solved a lot of the problems now, but when you were doing the iron clay part of the project, how different was that in terms of communication and getting samples and working out what's right and what's wrong oh, versus a board game piece? Like working with pandas, a known thing, right? I mean, I'm not diminishing it, but once you've worked with a Chinese supplier for a printing cardboard before, there's things you learn and there's things that you can reuse. I presume this was quite different. It was extremely difficult. So Chad Michael is one of the most, he is a world famous graphic designer. He's famous. Like every time you post something on Instagram, it gets like thousands of likes. <laughs> like every time he posts a picture of a new branding thing that he's done, it's like working with a celebrity. So he, he has demands from his clients. He wants to achieve a very specific aesthetic for all of his pieces. And that's why he's, that's why he's so sought after because he wants to achieve perfection. But then you have, because these things are dual molded, so they're like, you know, they do the inner core, they mold the inner core, then they mold the outer core, or sorry, then they fill it in to make the outer fill. But so depending on the complexity of the image, there has to be a certain amount of space between all elements to ensure that the material flows through at a certain rate, like so the, the second, you know, the second injection flows through at a specific rate to actually make them feasible. Like, you know, okay, this, you know, these two lines are too close together. So, you know, it's going to take double the time to make these. Therefore, the cost is double because what a lot of people don't understand when you're manufacturing games is you're, you know, you're not actually just paying for the material. What you are mostly paying for is the amount of time. You're basically renting a press or you're renting an injector, you know, an injection machine and the tools and stuff. It's like, it's how long does it take to make that thing and produce it? So there has to be enough space in the design to make them efficient to produce. So I would submit the design to the manufacturer from Chad Michael. The manufacturer would say, this doesn't work. Here's our suggested changes. But, you know, a Chinese manufacturer making design changes to to Ch chad michael's design he, he receives it back and he's like this is not gonna work at all so i'm kind of in the middle playing telephone between these two trying to keep and they're like well you know they don't you know chad doesn't understand that this has to be engineered and chad's like they don't understand that you know this is art and it has to be preserved and they're kind of both right so it's like constant you know compromise between both of them and so it was extremely stressful. In fact, if you told me how 
difficult and stressful the process of of making these dual molded chips would be and three designs like there's three different actual patterns on them uh spread over five chips and now over seven i probably would have not wanted to do it so eventually we got it figured out through a lot of concession from chad and through a lot of like you know risk taking by the manufacturer and we arrived at a good design and they were producible and everyone was finally happy but it was i mean it was a huge amount of time and stress well i hope you'll forgive the pun but uh I'm glad you, for one, that you were pot committed and had to follow through to the end because the product speaks for itself. If there's compromises made there in terms of the manufacturing, I'm struggling to see them. They look beautiful. Speaking of potentially compromised things, question from one of the listeners here. The beautiful wooden case, not designed for travel, it would appear, no handle. Was that a conscious decision or what's the, what's the story with the case as it stands? So first of all, we did not want to do a clamshell case because like I wanted to do something with where the, you know, it had these removable drawers. We wanted to do something different. Um, there's zillions of clamshell cases and you could just order iron clays and get a nice clamshell case from wherever you want. So we wanted to do something that's more like kind of designed like furniture for your game table. You know, I, we wanted something that is almost like permanently affixed on your game table. So we we'd went through a bunch of different designs. Like there was like one that was like a case with the sliding door on the top and then you pull something out of it. And the most functional thing that we found is, you know, have this thing on your shelf or on your game table and you pull a drawer out of it and you put the drawer on your table. You're, you're absolutely correct. It is not meant for travel. It is meant for your game room as a piece of furniture or to sit on your shelf and you pull something out of it very quickly and put it on your game table. And if you have the 400, you know, it's split between two banks. So really, you want to play a big, heavy game that requires a lot of bank. You just take those two, two drawers out, put one on each end of your table, because it's always nice to have two points of accessibility, and you just draw right out of it. And so the, the convenience within a location, I would say, was our objective. And obviously, there had to be design concessions made to achieve that. That makes absolute sense. It's how I see it being used. And I, I took your point about just go and buy a 15 buck aluminium case if you want to take them around the place. And then you won't worry if it gets dented. I wouldn't want to take that, you know, wonderful wooden uh, lacquered case around the place in the boot of my car with what's in the boot of my car, you know. Um, <laughs> I have a question about it, though. Are you involving another factory for that? Is that another supplier you've got to find to make it to that spec? Or what's the story yes. there? Yes. So. The factory that, that we use for the actual manufacturing of the wooden box, like all the collaborators on this project are like top tier collaborators. So the Iron Clay's chip manufacturer is one of the best in the world. The guys that are making the case or the chest, they're called MW and they make luxury packaging solutions. So their clients are like Johnny Walker, Jack Daniels. So they make these like $500 boxes of of just like that some of the some of the stuff that they make is like $300 for the cost of production of the box. Like they're like solid, you know, they've done solid wood with like metal handles and like just so over the top, but so gorgeous. You're sticking a three thousand bo- uh, dollar bottle pop in there, right? So exactly, exactly. Because I was like worried, man, shipping these things to clients. We we need to make sure that this and that. And he's like, Gavin, <laughs> you know, we send out whiskey that's worth thousands and thousands of dollars, 
and the whiskey is heavier than these clays are like when you consider the volume and the boxes are extremely heavy and the whiskey's breakable right this is our job right that kind of really made me feel good and the box itself is is extremely solid like it's a it's a brick like it feels like just this solid brick so we're very happy with the construction so mw they they're like i said their clients are like jack daniels they did something for hbo for like um the cast of hbo got like this big chest of of different whiskeys and vodkas and stuff like that so Nice. It sounds like, like you've solved all the problems then. I mean, when it comes to, or, or more to point, um, thought about those problems, I guess the chips are easier this time around, adding a couple of colors in that. You've got a design template and you know which you're working with. So let's talk about the last product then in the campaign, if that's cool with you, the cards. And there's promotional material of people doing tricks with them. What's the um, thought behind the cards? Because the handling characteristics for cards used for tricks are different to ones used at the table. and There are cardists doing tricks for us and stuff and magicians, but these are actually designed for magic or, you know, or actually just playing poker with, right? You know, they're kind of like, uh, if you've ever heard of Theory 11, uh, they make very, very high quality um, uh, cards. And I find them a huge inspiration just for, as somebody who likes, who appreciates beautiful things, if you're one of those people, then go to theory11.com and look at their cards and just they're just astonishingly beautiful. We found them to be a big inspiration. Chad Michaels actually made some cards for several. Uh, they made some for Art of Play. Uh, I think he's done some for uh, Theory 11 as well. Is he involved in your card set or have you um, used somebody else? No, Chad Michael designed um, the the whole deck. and Wonderful. And yeah so their function is to i mean there's a it's a beautiful deck of cards that's all um you, heck you know from what, what we were talking about earlier that i'm a big fan of uh gaming pieces as cultural artifacts so uh the fact i'll be receiving a, a pack of those is not a problem at all i assure you okay so let's talk to some a few practical things and then uh, i appreciate that i've had you on the phone for a long time and you are probably a, a busy a busy man right now in terms of the uh availability for these post kickstarter are you planning to have them as well distributed as the original kind of 100 sets? Because I was able to get those through Asmodee supported shops. And is, are you going to have the roles available in region? And is the pricing going to be competitive? Yeah, with the full commuter questions there. Uh, go ahead, yeah. Gavin. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to, like 100s and 200s, we're going to try to sell through retail. I don't know if, how many hobby shops will supply them. But certainly a lot of like artofplay.com will definitely su- supply them and more of these boutique shops that, that focus on sort of like gifts and stuff like, bar- you know, Barnes and Noble might potentially stock some and stuff like that. So we don't really know yet, but the, the Iron Clays have sold well, actually, through through hobby, just the Iron Clay 100s, the Iron Clay 200s. Don't know. I have no idea. Like you know we'll try we'll see what we'll see what happens uh we'll make some amount available you know whatever we don't uh sell through hobby then we'll just sell direct so it is a limited edition the um the wooden boxes we're going to print as many as we can out of the profit to potentially sell ourselves um direct after the campaign um it'll be for an additional price but you know once those are gone which shouldn't be you know, too long and they're very expensive to produce. So we probably won't produce a huge amount of them. Those will be uh, offered after the campaign at a heightened price. 
Well, I appreciate um, you probably didn't come on this interview for advice, but what I would say is I'm sure you're aware of this as well. The North American market, the options for poker chips are myriad. In Europe, our, our options for high-end poker chips are substantially less. So from my point of view, and I guess from a lot of our British listeners' point of view, seeing those in a UK distribution channel would be useful, to say the least. It's not a saturated marketplace over here. We have you know, dice chips available, and maybe you can have your label stuck on them, and that's about it, really. And don't get me wrong, they're functional, they do a job, and they're a darn sight better than playing with paper money. But when it comes down to it, if you want to own a nice, nice set of chips, this Kickstarter is a big reason why I'm back in the Kickstarter, right? So, and so I well, guess thank you. No, no problem at all. Well, speaking of which, I'm back in the Kickstarter. You're running the Kickstarter. Do you think there's a possibility that maybe our listeners can get one lucky listener could get on board and get a set of chips if we go halves? I right, we're we're gonna go whole hog. We'll 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 pay for it. So Roxley's pitching for a set of chips for you to. To give away are you sure we were happy to co-sponsor it well wow, no this- no we're we're in wow jeepers creepers well wow. we're doubling down um as we'd say in a blackjack terms <laughs> so fantastic so one lucky listener will get a set of these now my intention gavin was to do a microcast on the 18th of june where i would use a randomizer to pull the uh listener out and um let them know they've won the chips are you are you cool with that the 18th of june because that gives whoever does it gives all the people who sadly don't win a chance to uh rustle up the funds to back the chips if they're still interested. Absolutely. Gavin, that is so, so kind of you. I mean, heck, I'm shocked. That was off script. So um, (laughs) thank you for making the time today. It's really great to have you on the show. If you do do an 18xx at some time, if you, like I say, we'd love to take a pass and have a look at it or to chat to you about it. Super pleased to see a guy who um, values production values as highly as you involved in in our shared, shared part of the world, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for the entire 18xx community. And, you know, I, I want that to, to grow as, as Roxley grows. I would like to definitely, it's, it's, it's really an area of gaming that interests me in because of my infatuation with heavy games. I, I want to explore more. If, well, if I'm ever in Calgary, I'll see if I can uh, rustle you up for a game. Thank you so much. And also, if you're at home, thank you for listening. So, like I say, next show. Um, that you probably want to hear about respect this is on the 18th so signing out you've been listening to the train rush if you'd like to talk to the people behind the show you can reach us on twitter at the train rush you can engage with us via pictures using instagram the underscore train underscore rush you can contact us on facebook search for the train rush alternatively you can email us craig at the train or dave at the train If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Finally, if you'd like to contribute towards the show's running costs, then feel free to look at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com forward slash thetrainrush. Thank you for listening.